You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here today. Uh, Ken and I have known Robbie and Angela for probably 20 years now, I would imagine. Uh, Our kids grew up with uh, his oldest kids, uh, his oldest daughters especially. We love them dearly, and uh, we're happy to see what's going on here at Oasis. It's always great to see so many students here, and I know this is a good community for them to be a part of. It's also great to see some of the people I went to Israel with, which was an amazing trip. Uh, I've taught the New Testament for over 20 years, and it was my first time to get to go to Israel, and it has uh, already just impacted me so much, and so it was a wonderful opportunity, and if you, if you get a chance to go, if your church goes again, I'd really encourage you. It's, it was just a, a phenomenal experience, and I'm really glad uh, to have had that. So today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to read a lengthy text. It's Luke's version of the triumphal entry, and it comes to us in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 48. So it's going to be on the screen, or if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, I invite you to hear the word of the Lord this morning. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Then say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground, or on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive those out who were selling. It is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people 
were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Luke's gospel is such a beloved gospel. Many of our favorite stories that we know and love come to us from this gospel. And one of the unique things that Luke does in his gospel is he has this travel narrative where Jesus leaves Galilee up in the north and he heads down to Jerusalem. And all of the gospels tell us about this journey that Jesus makes, but only Luke devotes 10 chapters, 10 chapters to the journey. We find in Luke 9.51 through 19.44, the text that we just finished reading. And there's a number of ideas that are emphasized in the travel narrative that I want to mention before we kind of go back and work our way through this story. In the travel narrative, there's this emphasis on Jerusalem. See, in Luke's version, Jesus hasn't been to Jerusalem since he was 12 years old, where he was in the temple talking with the religious leaders. But starting in Luke 9.51, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. And there's this relentless focus in the text on Jerusalem as Jesus' destination. Jerusalem, the seat of religious authority, the city of David. And so over and over again, Jesus tells the crowd and tells his disciples that he's on his way to Jerusalem. And what's going to meet him there is suffering and death. So there's an emphasis on Jerusalem. Secondly, there's an emphasis on Jesus' identity. Just exactly who is this one who is traveling to Jerusalem. You know, from chapters 1 through 8, before we get into this travel narrative section, Luke tells us all kinds of things about Jesus. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit and is the Holy One. He's the Son of the Most High. He's the King to whom God will give the throne of his father David. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He is salvation. He's the one filled with the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the prisoner, to give recovery of, the, of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. He's a healer of fevers, a healer of leprosy. He's a healer of issues of blood. He's a healer of every sickness that's imaginable. He's Lord over every spirit, and he casts them out. He's Lord over death. He raises the poor widow's son. He raises Jairus' daughter. He's Lord over nature. He calms the storm and says, peace, be still. He multiplies the loaves and the fishes. This is who Jesus is. Yet even as he ministers from town to town throughout Galilee, people aren't sure. So you hear all these questions in the narrative. Who is this one? What do we do with this one? Even John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan, sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the one to come or are we waiting for someone else? See, Jesus didn't quite match up to John's expectations. So when we get into the travel narrative, we begin to see questions about Jesus' identity. And a lot of it comes to us from the religious leadership. And they're challenging Jesus. And they're saying, no, he's demon-possessed. He cast out demons by Beelzebub. 
They're challenging his authority. They're accusing him of being a Sabbath breaker because he heals on the Sabbath and sets people free. And by the end of our passage, they're ready to kill him. So we find this focus on Jesus' identity in the travel narrative. And the third thing we find in these 10 chapters that Luke is presenting us is this emphasis on discipleship. What does it mean to follow this Jesus who's on his way to Jerusalem and who says that there's a cross that awaits him? What does it mean to be a part of this kingdom? This kingdom doesn't sound like the kingdom that we're used to. Jesus talks about taking up a cross. Jesus talks about loving our enemies. Jesus talks about forsaking everything and giving what we have to the poor. Jesus talks about welcoming women. Good night. What in the world's going on there? And even tax collectors. So what kind of kingdom is this? And what does it mean to follow this Jesus? So our passage that we've read this morning comes to us at the end of this travel narrative as Jesus has been heading to Jerusalem and now is on the verge of coming into the city. So Luke presents this to us in four scenes. And so we're, we're going to work our way through these four scenes. And I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. I'm watching that clock back there so that I don't take too much time. And in scene one, verses 29 through 35, we're told that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And we kind of get these mile markers that Luke gives us to kind of mark the journey. And so we're told as Jesus approaches Bethpage, and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, that he sends these two disciples into the village with some specific instructions. We don't know who these disciples are. We don't really know what village they go into. But what we know is that they have a specific task. And that task is to get this cult. And so we learn some things about this cult. Jesus says, you're going to see this colt, and it's tied up, and it's a colt that has never been sat upon. Like, okay, what's the big deal about that? Does it matter if this colt has been sat upon or not? Well, actually, it does. And according to Numbers 19.2 and Deuteronomy 21, verse 3, animals that were to be used for certain sacred purposes were to be chosen from those that had never been used for ordinary labor. So this animal that Jesus has sent these two disciples to get is going to be used for a very special and sacred purpose. So the disciples go. They're, they're told they need to untie this colt and they need to bring it to Jesus. And Jesus sees them, even gives them words to say to the owners of this colt, right? Can you imagine that, you know, all of a sudden you look out back in, the, in, in your little backyard where your colt is and you see these two strangers untying your animal? And you think, you know, they're trying to steal it. And so Jesus prepares them for this, and he tells them what to say. And the Greek kind of makes a little, little play. The NIV doesn't pick up on it necessarily. But um, the owners are really lords, kurioi. And so Jesus tells them, say to the lords when they ask you, why are you untying this donkey? Say to the lords, the Lord needs it. And so when the disciples go and they find the colt and they untie it and they're getting ready to lead it away from its home and the owners, the lords come and say, why are you doing this? They say, because the Lord 
needs it. See, Jesus has orchestrated this entire episode, and the disciples find things just as he said. So they bring their colt to Jesus, and they put their cloaks on uh, this colt, and they set Jesus upon this animal that's never been sat on before. You know, in Israel's history, um, their kings would uh, be brought into Jerusalem for their coronation, riding on a mule or a donkey. And so this scene conjures up images of Israel's past when their kings would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So here comes Jesus now riding on this colt. Now, Jesus has been walking all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and that's a long ways, right? Um, it's about 75, 80 miles, I think, uh, if, I, if I read the right thing. But it's only for this last mile that he is going to ride. And it isn't because Jesus is suddenly too tired that he just can't ride anymore. He's got blisters on his feet, or he just needs to ride. It's not because of that at all. It's because Jesus understands himself fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9. The prophet says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, this isn't just an ordinary trip to Jerusalem. This is a symbolic journey. The king is coming into his city riding on a donkey. And so the garments are spread on the road. People take off their, their outer garments and they, they lay them down in front. And so the donkey walks over these garments. And even Luke's Gentile audience for whom he's riding would have been familiar with this type of triumphal entry. For you see, centuries early, Ale earlier, Alexander the Great had rode into Jerusalem as its conqueror. And Roman emperors often rode into the cities that they had conquered with great fanfare and great pageantry. And so Luke's audience would have been familiar with this. Yet for all of its similarities, there will be striking differences between this king and those kings. See, Caesar would wear a laurel crown. And Jesus will wear a crown of thorns. These rulers would go and offer sacrifices into the temple to their God. Jesus is going to become the sacrifice. The rulers would rejoice over their conquests. This king will weep over Jerusalem. But Jesus isn't coming into Jerusalem to claim a kingship. Jesus is already king. Jesus was born king. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as its king. So that's our first scene. In our second scene, in verses 37 through 38, Jesus now is at the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives kind of sits up here and then looks down over the Kidron Valley. And so there's about a half a mile that Jesus needs to journey from the Mount of Olives down the valley and into the city of Jerusalem. And the crowds of disciples that are with them are celebrating and they're rejoicing and they're praising God in loud voices, it says, for all the miracles 
that they had seen. For in Jesus' works, God is at work. And they are recognizing this in what Jesus has been doing. And so they say, blessed is the one coming, the king in the name of the Lord, in heaven peace and glory in the highest. This first part is a quote of Psalm 118, 26. And we heard it this morning in our call to worship. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And this psalm was used in Israel. It was a royal psalm. Um, and so when there was a royal entry, they would quote this psalm about the king who entered into the city. And later it became part of the Feast of Tabernacles where Jerusalem, people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the great feast and they would wave their palm branches and they would shout Hosanna and they would celebrate with the palm branches. But isn't it interesting that Luke doesn't have any palm branches? We don't hear the Hosannas ringing forth like we do in the other gospel accounts. And so I think Luke is thinking of this entry into Jerusalem and wants his readers to understand that this is King Jesus coming into Jerusalem as its king. It's also interesting to note that this declaration that they're saying, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, fulfills something that Jesus has said earlier in Luke. And I think perhaps you've heard this already uh, in some of the sermons leading up to this week. But in Luke chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem, and there's a connection to our text. And so I want to read that for us today. In Luke 13, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here now in our passage that we're looking at today, the crowds of, this, of disciples are on the road to Jerusalem. They're almost there and they're saying this, blessed is the one, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jerusalem is silent. While Jesus' disciples recognize him, Jerusalem does not. In the second half of the verse, the disciples say, in heaven, peace and glory in the highest. And it kind of reminds us of the birth narratives in Luke. Do you remember the story where you have all kinds of angelic hosts announcing that Jesus has been born in Bethlehem and they come to the shepherds and tell them this wonderful news and there's this great heavenly host that break forth into praise and celebration. And what do they say? Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on whom though those on whom his favor rests. See, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation brought peace to earth. God's redemptive presence was manifested in Jesus and humanity is invited to share in that salvation. But this full manifestation of peace on earth has been interrupted by this opposition to Jesus. 
But peace on earth is still God's intention. God is still desiring for peace to be here. And he invites us, you and I, have the opportunity to share in that, to be lovers of peace, promoters of peace, keepers of peace, sharing in that vision that God has for all of creation, peace in the heavens, peace on the earth. May we be those keepers of peace today and each day. So some of the Pharisees who are in the crowd And we might be surprised that there's Pharisees in the crowd, right? They're the ones that are always kind of opposing Jesus. And we see that through the travel narrative. And we we might have thought maybe they kind of went off to the side and didn't participate in this event. But apparently they're here um, taking part of this kind of final push into Jerusalem. And they say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. You know, maybe they were afraid of the Romans, Maybe they're afraid they might hear all the commotion that's going on. You know, it's dangerous to sing about a king when you're living in an occupied land. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a political statement, right? And Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. And so proclaiming this, maybe the Pharisees were worried about that. You know, we might get in trouble with Rome, and Rome was all too happy to put down uh, insurrections or people who who, uh, tried to stir up trouble. So maybe they're afraid of that. But I think actually they just were opposing what was being said. And in that way, they kind of represent Jerusalem, the religious leadership, the authorities there. They're kind of like those ones that Jesus talks about that see but don't see who hear but don't hear. See, they've been with Jesus for the journey. They've seen the miracles. They've they've watched what Jesus has done. They've heard his teaching. They've learned about this kingdom and what it means to be a part of it. And they have a choice of whether they want to participate in that, just like you and I have that choice of whether this kingdom is going to be the kingdom in which we choose to live or not. Jesus, silence your disciples rebuke them. But I love what Jesus says. If they will be silent, the stones will cry out. Fred Craddock, in his commentary on Luke in the interpretation series, my students know I like that series a lot, he says, some things simply must be said. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord simply must be said. We cannot be silent. Praise must be given to the one who is our king and our Lord and our savior. And so Jesus says, if these won't praise me, the very stones will cry out. Jesus will be praised. Jesus will be Praised. See, in our worship, we rehearse who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Our worship shows who we are aligned with. It's really a statement of our allegiance that we belong to God, that this one that we've been singing about is our Lord and our King, the one that comes and speaks peace to the situations in our life, the one who loves us with reckless love. The one who is the king who comes through the gates. And so we come through the gates bringing our thanks, our worship, 
and our praise to him. All of creation sings God's praise. That's what the Psalms declare. We have the opportunity to join in that song. There's an old song that says, ain't gonna let no rock outpraise me. Ain't gonna let it sing in my place. It comes to us from this text. Worship is so important. It's so important that we are worshipers of God. And I'll just remind you what that text says. It does say that they worshiped in a loud voice. It's okay to lift our voices in worship, to shout out our praises to God. He delights in our praises. And so we can do it quietly. We can do it loudly. God wants to be worshiped. It's always right to worship the Lord. And I love to preach on worship. It's one of my favorite topics. But back to our text. In scene number three, verses 41 through 44, Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. You know, after being in Israel, I have a greater appreciation for this passage, what it means um, when it says that as, as Jesus was approaching the city, um, he, he just he saw it in front of him because we were on the Mount of Olives and we kind of uh, walked down this path that could have been you know, where Jesus descended uh, the Mount of Olives and it was packed with people. It was so crowded, but I was really trying to take the moment in and I was really trying to focus on this passage because I knew I was going to be preaching on this text and I'm like, Lord, please inspire me. You know, give me a sermon while I'm walking down this road. Um, but I was trying to imagine it, and I remember when we, when we got to the Mount of Olives, and it's just breathtaking to see the city kind of laid out before you. And so I can only imagine the excitement and the, the joy as they approached Jerusalem and they, they saw the city because they'd been up in Galilee, and coming to Jerusalem is a big deal. And so here they come into the city, and Jesus comes into the city walking, or I'm sorry, he's not walking, is he? He's riding, riding on this donkey, and he's weeping. And, and as I was walking that path, uh, as we were heading uh, down towards the Garden of Gethsemane, I found myself, um, you know, welling up with tears just thinking about this passage. But you know, it's really not the response that we're anticipating, is it? Weeping? I mean, Jesus is finally here. And in Luke's gospel, Luke has made us wait for 10 long chapters. We were told he's going to go to Jerusalem. And if we're reading Matthew or Mark, or even if we're reading uh, John, John has a little different presentation. But man, in just a short space of time, Jesus is there. But not Luke. See, Luke makes us contemplate the journey. Think about the journey. Think about what it means to follow this one with this message on the way to Jerusalem. And so chapter after chapter after chapter, we have waited for Jesus to get to this point. And when he gets there, he's weeping. His disciples are declaring him king. Shouldn't he be rejoicing like that video? Here it is. Like that video of the two boys 
getting ready to go to Disney World. I love that. One is so excited, ah, Disney World, right? And the other just burst into tears, overwhelmed, right? And I can just imagine the disciples. The disciples are like the first little boy. We're in Jerusalem, yeah. They're so excited. I'm sure Peter is thinking about how he's going to be chief of staff. He's just going to run everything, you know, going to take care of Jesus' agenda, and he's going to, you know, put all these things together. And James and John, who knows what they're thinking about, right? They want to be on the right and the left. So the disciples have all of this um, concepts in their mind about what it's going to be to come into Jerusalem and how exciting it's going to be. The king has finally come, but Jesus is weeping. <laughs> Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations, does he? We might be embarrassed by a weeping Jesus. We might be angered by a weeping Jesus. What kind of Jesus is this? We might be strangely comforted by a Jesus who weeps, God with us, God who weeps with us, God who weeps for us. So Jesus weeps over the city. And Luke, Luke tells us in Jesus' words two reasons why he weeps. In verse 42, Jesus says, If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Jesus weeps over their failure to recognize what would bring them peace. And secondly, in verse 44, Jesus says, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus weeps over their failure to recognize their time of visitation from God. See, for Luke, peace is not just about good relations with Rome. Of course, that would be important. But it's not just about that. It's not just about good relationship with the temple authorities and the religious leaders and all of that entailed. Peace is not just individual tranquility or harmony within ourselves. See, for Luke, peace is a soteriological concept. It's about shalom. It's about justice and, and this gift that God gives us that embraces salvation for all in all of its social, material, and spiritual realities. See, Jesus comes bringing peace. Jesus comes bringing salvation. But by their rejection, they've refused this peace. And so it really makes for a somber scene. It's not the triumphal entry like we think it should be. Jerusalem doesn't welcome their king or the kingdom. See, to welcome Jesus is a sign of salvation in Luke Acts. Even Zacchaeus, the tax collector, welcomes Jesus into his home. There's so many points of comparison I wish we had time to, to kind of lay out between Jesus' lament here over Jerusalem and what um, Zechariah, uh, the father of John the Baptist, says way back in, in chapter 1. But there's just one I want to mention that hits on this point about peace. In Luke 1.79, Zacharias says that God's visitation will come to guide our feet into the path of peace. So Luke's been setting us up for this, but yet we come to this passage and find that they have rejected the very one who brings them peace. So in our final scene, verses 45 through 48, 
Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. He goes into the temple, and he cleanses it. And we're not really going to spend a lot of time uh, on that passage. Jesus declares that the true purpose of the temple is to be a house of prayer. And what's so fascinating is that Luke tells us that every day Jesus now is in the temple teaching the people as they are there. And there are two responses to Jesus' teaching. The religious leaders want to kill Jesus. That's the first response. But the people, Luke says, hang on every word. I don't know if you remember Simeon in the birth stories. Simeon in the temple, <coughs> excuse me, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus and present him. And Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. And one of the things that he says to Mary is that Jesus will be the cause of division in Israel. And we see that right here. The religious leadership wants to kill him. The people are hanging on his words. Right? You alone have the words of life. That's from John's gospel, but it applies here. They're receiving his words. So I kind of want to close with a few thoughts here. When I first read through this passage, I was so moved, I guess is the word I want, by Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And uh, read all kinds of commentaries, because that's what you do to prepare for a sermon. Um, and uh, not many of them really dealt with it, at least not to, to the level that, that I wanted, because uh, I just find it to be um, a profound statement that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he wept because they missed the things that would bring them peace. They missed Jesus. They rejected what Jesus had to bring them. And I wonder if Jesus weeps still as he sees us in our frantic search for peace. <laughs> because we're all longing for it, aren't we? We all want peace. We want peace externally and internally, right? Externally in so many ways. We want peace between nations. We want peace between us and our fellow, uh, fellow countrymen. We want peace between us and our family members. We want peace to be in our lives. We want peace internally, right? That turmoil that rages in our lives because this life is not easy. We're looking for peace. And we diligently search out those things that we think will make for peace. And we talk about peace treaties and accords and, and compacts between nations for peace. And we think maybe bigger armies will give us peace, security. We think maybe carrying our own weapons for protection will give us peace and security, or maybe it's that exercise program or aromatherapy, or maybe it's more coffee that we need, whatever it is, looking for ways to find peace. And I think we should work for and promote peace. I think we should do it in nonviolent ways. But I think peace is something Jesus calls us to. But true peace, true peace is only found in Jesus. It's in our salvation. True peace is not dependent on our circumstances, but on our Savior. 
Jesus says, in this world, you're going to have troubles. Peace doesn't mean that we're going to have a life that's free from trouble. Bad things happen. We experience hurt. We experience pain. We experience rejection. We experience all kinds of things that steal our peace. But Jesus comes and says, I'm your peace. Jesus goes to the cross to be our peace. There is true peace that we can experience in our lives. You know, when Jesus healed people, he often granted them peace. Go in peace, he would say. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples, he said, peace be with you. Jesus says, peace, I leave you. My peace, I give you. See, it's not peace like the world gives. It's Jesus' peace. It's the peace of God. In Acts 10.36, Peter says that in Jesus, God announced the gospel of peace. This peace that Jesus offers is different than the world's offer of peace. Why? Because Jesus doesn't just offer peace. Jesus is peace. His peace is not fleeting his peace is not temporal. His peace is lasting and sure and eternal. It's why we can say with that hymn that we love to sing, whatever my lot, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. That's the peace we're talking about. Peace is welcoming Jesus into your life. Peace is aligning yourself with the peaceable kingdom that is his. His kingdom cannot be co-opted by worldly kingdoms, by political agendas, or even by the church. We got to watch what we throw our garments down in front of. If you're going to follow this king, this one that we've been reading about this morning, this one that Luke makes us follow through 10 chapters, then your attitudes and values, your desires and your mindset must align with Jesus. It's still about taking up that cross and all that that image conveys. Don't miss peace this morning. The gospel we preach is a gospel of peace. Through Jesus, we have peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. Paul says this peace that Jesus gives surpasses understanding, and he even says that it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of peace I want. That's the kind of peace I need. That peace comes by following this King who comes in the name of the Lord through the cross and out the tomb. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.